shipping tends to use some of the dirtiest and heaviest of the fossil fuels. So when it's burnt by the big tankers and the big bulk carriers and other ships that you see out there, it really does contribute quite a bit. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. The international shipping industry is a major greenhouse gas emitter, accounting for about 3% of all greenhouse gases emitted last year. For reference, this is roughly equivalent to the total annual emissions of Germany. Because these emissions occur on international waters, the shipping industry was purposefully excluded from the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Instead, a United Nations agency called the International Maritime Organization is the Forum for Multilateral Diplomacy to Curb Emissions in International Shipping. And in early July, members of the IMO met in London for negotiations. Joining me to discuss why this meeting was so significant to international efforts to curb greenhouse gas emissions is Susan Rufo. Senior Director and Senior Advisor for Ocean and Climate at the United Nations Foundation. We kick off discussing the impact of international shipping on climate change and then have an extended conversation about what happened at the meeting of the International Maritime Organization. This included setting a new target for emission reduction and progress towards enacting a levy on carbon emissions from shipping. It's in meetings like this where the rubber hits the road or the rudder hits the water on making concrete progress towards the Paris Agreement goal of limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And this conversation does a good job of explaining the state of play of international negotiations on limiting carbon emissions from the international shipping industry. And a quick note, for those of you who are listening to this more or less contemporaneously, I will be at the Aspen Security Forum next week from July 18th to 21st. We're doing a bunch of on-site interviews there. Uh, and if you are attending, come say hi, introduce yourself. I love meeting listeners. And of course, as always, you can reach me using the contact button on globaldispatches.org. Now here is my conversation with Susan Rufo of the United Nations Foundation. The International Maritime Organization is not the best-known UN specialized agency. Can you explain briefly what it is and what it does? The International Maritime Organization is basically responsible for the safety and security of international shipping and also prevention of pollution from international shipping. So it's been around since about 1948, working on those issues. And I assume, like other UN specialized agencies, it's governed by its member states, probably with like an executive board and a director general of some sort. 
Correct. It has a secretary general who actually will be changing over next year. It also has a sort of council of member states that run the governance of the body. It has about 175 member states. And these member states were meeting recently in London to discuss ways to mitigate the role that international shipping plays in greenhouse gas emissions. Before we discuss the content of that discussion and debate in London, where the IMO's headquarters is located, can you just give listeners a background on what impact the international shipping industry has on greenhouse gas emissions and climate change more broadly? So shipping actually is a fairly large contributor to greenhouse gas emissions, but we don't usually think about it. It accounts for about 3% of global emissions, which doesn't sound like a lot. That's roughly the same as the country of Germany, just to give you a perspective. So it's a major emitter. And if we can do something about those emissions, that's obviously a good thing. The challenge is that about 80% of goods travel by ship. So changing the way that that trade works is really complicated and it affects sort of global supply chains everywhere, you know, sort of everything we use and everything we eat. The other interesting thing about shipping emissions is they're not actually part of the Paris Agreement. Although they're covered under the general goals of the Paris Agreement, so, you know, trying to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, those emissions are not really regulated or accounted for anywhere within the Paris constructs. So because Hmm. they take place on international waters, on the high seas, they're not accounted for in countries' nationally determined contributions or their emissions reductions plans. Ah, so I see. So while the Paris Agreement covers like national emissions, because these emissions occur in international waters, they're specifically excluded from the Paris Agreement. I would imagine, though, that that's where the IMO sees its role as kind of stepping up and contributing to Paris, even though it's excluded from Paris. Absolutely. So the IMO sees itself as contributing to achieving the Paris goals and helping to manage those emissions that are not part of that national voluntary system that comes under the Paris Agreement. The other sector that might be similar is aviation, where there's a separate international organization that deals with aviation. So the IMO, it's not governed by the UNFCCC or the climate change agreements, but it aligns itself with those goals. And the point of the strategy that they just adopted and the earlier strategy that they had is really to think about how shipping can contribute to those overall goals. So therefore, it would be a meeting of the International Maritime Organization in which climate change emission reduction goals would be sort of discussed and set amongst its member state. And that's the context for the meeting in London. Correct. They're basically revising their greenhouse gas strategy. The first time the IMO really took this on, they adopted a strategy in 2018 to reduce global greenhouse gas emissions from shipping. So this is a revision of that strategy. And ultimately, it was a significant increase in the ambition of that strategy. One more question on emissions in the shipping sector. I mean, I assume, and I'm correct in assuming, that the emissions probably mostly come from the kind of fuel that's used in big tankers that traverse oceans. Correct. Shipping tends to use some of the dirtiest and heaviest of the fossil fuels, So when it's burnt by the big tankers and the big bulk carriers and other ships that you see out there, it really does contribute quite a bit to 
CO2 emissions, also particulates and sulfur. So it's not a clean burning fuel by any means. So going into this meeting in London, there was a lot of anticipation and frankly, a really decent amount of media coverage of this meeting for the fact that it would be the forum in which the shipping industry would seek to come together in an agreement around reducing emissions. What were some of the kind of expectations and key debates headed into this meeting? I think there was a lot of expectations, a lot of hopes, but also a lot of very different opinions going into this meeting. I mean, as you Mm -hmm. said earlier, the IMO doesn't usually get a lot of press. So it was sort of an interesting atmosphere to walk into the meeting in. I think there were a couple of key issues on the table. One is how much would the sector and would the member states of the IMO agree to cut emissions? What was the target going to be? Was it going to be ambitious enough? When they set their first target in 2018, The target was to cut emissions from the sector 50% by 2050, which was a great start. It was the first time that they'd really taken on a strategy like that, but it was not enough to keep the Paris Agreement targets within reach. So the question this time was, could they keep Paris within reach? Could they be Paris aligned? I think the second big question on the table was, how does that transition happen? Is it going to only benefit the countries of the North? that typically have some of the biggest shipping lines that are, you know, big importers and exporters, or would the developing countries in the global South be able to benefit from this? Would it truly be a just and equitable transition that leaves no one behind to pick up some of the Paris language? And the third piece is how would they do it? And one of the key things about the IMO that's very different than the UNFCCC is it is a regulator. So it actually has the authority to enforce regulations that it puts in place. So the strategy is not a binding strategy. It's a set of targets, a set of aspirations. It's a framework for what they want to do. But the next step is actually developing the regulations that will help them get there. And those are binding. So that's a very different scenario than the UNFCCC. And how they use that authority is one of the big questions going into the meeting and also one of the big questions coming out. And was one of the potential ways that they could use their authority, this idea of imposing some sort of levy on emissions? I had seen that floating out there as something that advocates in particular were seeking to have enacted or make progress on during this meeting. Yes, that was one of the big questions on the table. The idea was basically, could the IMO or should the IMO put a price on GHG emissions coming out of the shipping sector. And there were several proposals on the table. This has actually been being discussed for quite a while. In about 2013, about 10 years ago, they actually did have a debate on this that in the end they didn't, they reached no conclusions on, but it's come back. There are proposals on the table, one of the most ambitious of which was put forward by several Pacific Island states. And the idea is to put a price on carbon emissions from the sector, maybe $100 a ton, use that to essentially close the price gap between these old polluting fossil fuels and the new fuels of the future that we need in order to get zero emissions shipping. So basically close that price gap, use some of the proceeds of that levy to reinvest in the sector, to create the infrastructure and the training and other things for seafarers that are needed to make this happen, but also to support mitigation and adaptation in developing countries, and particularly some of the most vulnerable, like small island states, 
that are being already affected by climate change. So it's a pretty bold proposal. So I've never covered the IMO per se, but I've covered like dozens of these kinds of meetings at the UN and its specialized agencies. And inevitably, what you see are kind of coalitions of countries banding together to pursue certain agendas. Oftentimes, there's like a more higher ambition coalition. And then there are other countries that have certain industries on their territory that might not benefit from the proposals of the higher ambition countries. Generally speaking, like what were the kind of blocks of countries negotiating during this meeting? Yeah, it's very much like other international meetings, as you described. The difference is maybe the blocks are a little bit different at the IMO than they are at the UNFCCC and maybe sometimes less solid. But what we had going into this meeting was some interesting groupings. We had very high ambition proposals from small island states in the Pacific, as well as the US, the UK, Canada, really pushing on this idea to set Paris aligned targets for the IMO. So the U.S. was on the side of like the higher ambition coalition. Yes. I would say the U.S., U.K., Canada, and the Pacific Islands were at the highest levels of ambition, really pushing for complete alignment with Paris and 1.5. You know, you saw other groupings of countries, you know, South America, China, and others that were not as ambitious going in. And that's obviously where a lot of the conversation happened. The other big piece of it was the levy that you mentioned, or this emissions pricing mechanism, as they called it, there were very different opinions about what that could and should look like. You know, again, there became sort of a real divide between some blocks, again, Pacific Islands and other developing countries that really put this bold proposal forward and were really supporting it as a way of getting the emissions reductions that are needed and really catalyzing that change quickly, but also having the resulting revenue as something that could be used to help them and others transition. And to give you a sense, the World Bank estimated that if there were a $100 a ton price put on carbon from the shipping sector, that could generate 40 to $60 billion a year. We're talking about significant funding here. And which countries were adamantly, or which blocks, I should say, were more adamantly opposed to that idea? I would say the strongest set of voices against that idea were primarily from Latin America. And the biggest concern was, you know, they're countries that are big producers often of agricultural products or other kind of bulk commodities like iron ore. They're far from their markets. They obviously rely on shipping to get both imports and exports. And they were afraid that increasing the cost of shipping would increase the costs to them of getting things in and out of their markets and ultimately hurt their competitiveness. Hmm. And we heard that from other countries like South Africa that had similar concerns. So, you know, I think there was a real refrain there. I think there was a bit of an attempt to spin this as a, I guess, divide between developed and developing countries, which I don't think was really accurate. For the countries that were supporting this, we saw some of the most vulnerable developing countries like the Pacific and others from the Caribbean and some from Africa that, you know, really felt like this could be a way to not only cut emissions, but also help them through the transition, as well as countries from the European Union that had agreed during President Macron's finance summit that you know this could be a way to also generate some funding to help support developing countries. But you had on the other side, you know, other developing countries that were concerned about their markets. And I think that's going to be the big question going forward is how do we resolve some of those questions and concerns? And can you design a mechanism that really does 
take all of that into account. In the end, there was no agreement on the levy of carbon emissions from the shipping industry. What were, however, some of the outcomes of this meeting? So the big outcome from the meeting was that they adopted a new strategy. And that strategy set a new target for cutting emissions from the sector that is essentially net zero emissions by 2050. And then they've also chosen some what they called intermediate checkpoints to really ensure that, you know, we don't just wait till 2050 to try to do everything, but we're actually reducing emissions along the way. So they've set a checkpoint of 20 to 30% reductions by 2030, 70 to 80% reductions by 2040, going to the net zero by 2050. So it's an ambitious trajectory. It's not the Paris Align trajectory that we had hoped for, that the Pacific and the US and the UK were pushing for, but it is an ambitious trajectory. So that was a really big deal. I think the other things that have gotten overlooked a bit in the headlines are that this strategy really enshrines this concept of a just and equitable transition. It's in the vision statement of the strategy. It's in the section where they talk about the implementing measures that they're going to now design, that it has to contribute to this idea of a just and equitable transition, which essentially is saying this isn't just going to benefit the rich countries of the North. We're going to think about what developing countries need, how they're going to be impacted, how they're going to benefit, and also thinking about sort of the seafarers and others that work in this sector and what needs to be done for them in order to make this transition. That's a highlight that has gotten missed, but was a very important part of the conversation and something that developing countries really, really pushed for. And I think is showing that developing country voices are becoming stronger and stronger in the climate debates. We saw that a little bit last year at COP with the establishment of the Loss and Damage Fund. And I think we're seeing it again now. And so that makes me hopeful that there will be sort of a better way to design some of this work. Can I just ask you to explain in a little more detail, what does a just and equitable transition in the International Shipping Center look like? What would it mean in practice? That's not defined. So I can tell you what I think. I can tell you sort of a general perception, but it's not written down anywhere in you know an agreed text. Now, what do you think? You study this. <laughs> I think there are a couple things. I think for a just transition, that typically talks about a workforce. And what we're talking about there is about 800,000 seafarers, as well as all the people who work in ports. And if you think about what needs to happen in the maritime sector, we're talking about essentially transforming ships, ports, fuel supply lines, all the infrastructure that supports ships when they're at port, puts power into them, fuels them from fossil fuels into something else. And that something else is probably going to be a mix of things. So we need to train all of those people to be able to use the new fuels of the future and build all of that infrastructure. And there are communities around those ports, obviously, that will be impacted. So I think when we talk about just transition, we're really thinking about all of those people who you know, need to be trained and brought through that transition. When you think about an equitable transition, I generally think of that in terms of how countries and communities will fare in this transition. And there's several pieces to it. One is just making sure that it's sort of procedurally fair and that countries have a voice, which I think we saw last week at the IMO that you know more and more developing countries are participating, are leading, are putting ideas forward. Historically, at the IMO, developing countries have been really underrepresented. And so of the 175 members, you might get 40 
that participate in meetings on a regular basis. You know, we're hoping to change that. We saw about probably 90 at this last meeting and about 60 to 70 of those really actively participating. We definitely need those voices. We also need to make sure that the impacts of what the IMO decides, particularly in its regulations, don't disproportionately fall on developing countries. So if you raise Mm -hmm. shipping costs, islands are often impacted because they import and export everything. Developing countries rely on exports of often commodities. They can be more impacted. So how do you address those disproportionate impacts and make sure that those countries are not left behind? And how do you set up the rules so that in the end, you know, all the new zero emissions, clean fuel ships are not running just between, you know, the US and Europe or the US and China, but they are also going to Africa and around Africa and to the Pacific Islands and other places. So we're not just pushing off all the dirty fuel into those developing countries. So One of the the key outcomes you just mentioned was to get to net zero by 2050. Like, how will this happen? Is it really mostly a matter of replacing the fuels that power ships right now? Are there certain technologies that need to be embraced in order for this to happen? There are things we can do right now. It's not just about all new technologies. So it's not just sort of a, you know, a wish or a hope. Most People and analyses show that we can meet the 2030 targets with existing technologies and energy efficiency increases. And what that means in practice is ships go slower. And so they use less fuel and they use it more efficiently. We change propellers, we clean hulls, we do things that we know how to do that actually increase the energy efficiency of what we're burning right now. That can get us a fair amount of the way. The targets they're aiming for for 2030 are 20 to 30 percent. On a Paris aligned trajectory, they should be 37% reductions by 2030, which is also possible. So, you know, I think that's the first stage, right? Is how do we really maximize what we can do now and that we know how to do? And then the later phases, when we get to the 2040 and 2050 goals, that's going to require some shifting of fuels. And that's looking at a range of fuels. But I think most people are guessing that the fuels that would become the big game changer are going to be green hydrogen-derived fuels like green ammonia. And those will require new engines, new ships, new bunkering, new infrastructure. So, you know, we've got some time, but there will need to be a lot of investment to make that happen. So what was the third key outcome of this IMO meeting that you'd want to highlight? So I would say the third key outcome is that they are still very much discussing a levy. There was never going to be an final decision on the regulatory measures that the IMO is going to take at this meeting. This meeting was designed to adopt the strategy and make sure that's in place as a framework and then talk about what the regulatory measures are that go to the next phase of development. So under that decision where they decided on, you know, these are the regulatory measures we're going to look at and we're going to move them on for discussion and adoption. One of those is a technical measure, something like a global fuel standard. There's you know, general agreement, that's a good thing, an efficient way to drive emissions reductions. The other piece of that is some sort of economic component, like an emissions pricing mechanism, which could be a levy. And that is very much on the table, which I find really exciting and precedent-setting. I mean, if you think about a global regulator that can enforce what it puts in place, talking about putting a price on carbon in an entire sector, you know, that's quite a move. We're a long way from that being adopted yet. There's still a lot of discussion. 
There's still, you know, all of the concerns and objections that we talked about earlier, but it is on the table. It is a real discussion. And I think it is something that's going to get a lot of attention as we go forward. So going forward, like what's the next key moment in this discussion, this debate on how the international shipping industry can contribute more to climate solutions and be less of a problem? So I think there's a couple things. One is they will be designing regulatory measures, which everyone knows is not a very sexy conversation. You know, there'll be lots of technical details, but the bottom line is, you know, within the next 12 to 18 months, they will have a series of kind of final measures that they want to adopt. Like I said, the global fuel standard, some kind of pricing mechanism, most likely potentially a universal levy, and that those will likely be adopted in 2025 and then go into force around 2027. So sounds like a long time from now. On the other hand, anyone who knows regulatory processes knows that you know they don't move quickly. The other piece I would say is they're also looking at the same time at what they call short-term measures, which are these energy efficiency measures that we were just talking about. And those are going to be updated kind of over the next couple of years as well. So I think that will help to drive some of those more immediate emissions reductions while they're working on the fuel standards and other things that will kind of kick in when we look at these new fuels. And one thing is, if you think about the lifespan of a ship, we're talking 20 to 30 years for these investments. So if you think about the fact that the IMO has now set these checkpoints for what emissions should be for you know, 2030, 2040, ships that they're buying right now will be on the water in 2040. And they will have these regulatory measures in place by 2030, definitely by 2040. So if you're investing in a ship right now, you're thinking about what that ship will cost you when those measures come into place. And you're starting to make bets that, ooh, a fossil fuel ship might be really, really expensive to run by 2040. So you're probably thinking about how you get dual fuels or ships that you know you can convert over when that time comes and those regulations really hit into force. So it sounds like a long time, but the investments that are made in this sector are long-term investments. And they're already thinking now about what they need to be doing in order to make sure they you know, are not stuck with some stranded assets by 2040. Susan, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Well, thank you so much for being interested. Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>